You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. As bond yields continued their ascent today, growthy tech stocks yet again took it on the chin, with the Nasdaq down 11% from its February highs. Next, cleanup on aisle LQD, a prominent investment-grade bond ETF, sheds over $800 million in outflows. Then, if the duration bubble is popping, where can investors hide? Meanwhile, GameStop is back over $200. What in the world is going on with that? For all of this and more, I'm joined by Tyler Neville. Tyler, welcome back to The Daily Briefing. How are you doing? Jack, I'm doing great, man. I'm finally uh, in in the clear in Austin and took a shower, so uh, I'm a little bit more clean cut this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm glad for it. You know, you came on with Ed uh, in the middle of the storm. People uh, were really impressed with your thinking. How has your thinking evolved on the market? Since then, we've seen an acceleration in the rotation, not just from growth uh, to value, but from let's say, long duration to short duration. That happened in the equity markets as well as within the credit markets. Um, you know, today, the 10-year the uh, continued to rise uh, almost three basis points. Uh, you know, it's now above, firmly above the 1.6% level. Uh, how are you thinking about this rotation as rates continue to rise? Yeah, I think you know, last time we talked about how you know, Jay Powell was going to have to do something about the rising yields. Otherwise, high-growth tech stocks are going to get taken to the cleaners. We're seeing that in real time, and uh, today especially, uh, the high yield market is taking a big hit, um, relatively speaking. But spreads are blowing out, um, and this was all led because the move index was was going up. And one of the the market gurus, Harley Bassman, talks about when you see the move index vol kind of go up, that's a leading indicator for for high yield credit spreads blowing out. So. I think this is going to keep going um, until the Fed meeting. We'll probably get like a short cover bid um, into that thing. But um, longer term, if if Jay Powell does not cap yields, uh, this could be a, a horror show for high growth tech and a great rotation into value. Tyler, uh, you know, maybe a lot of people at home, they know what the VIX is. It's the, the volatility index for the S&P 500. They may not know what the move index is. Can you tell us what that is? and why it's so important, particularly for, for high yield. Yeah, the move index is basically just the equivalent in the bond treasury bond market um, as the VIX is in the S&P. So it just gauges the volatility across a range of durations in, in treasuries. So when you see the move index pop higher, it's generally a leading indicator for, for credit spreads in general. So we're seeing the corporate bond market now, spreads are blowing out a, a little bit more, which kind of puts pressure on, on a lot of sectors in the market. Um, one, one of the interesting divergences, though, is that uh, energy is a large weighting in, in the high-yield market, which kind of has created um, a little bid there. But today, we're seeing that unwind a bit, um, which makes me and probably Jay Powell a little concerned that uh, conditions are tightening, which we'll, we'll see what he says at the next meeting. 
Tell me more about that, Tyler, because I think of energy as a sector that's thriving during the reflation trade as, uh, you know, not just as yields rise, but as the economy reopens and growth picks back up, people uh, need oil, they need jet fuel, stuff like that. But you're saying that as rates rise, that's actually going to impose pressure on the balance sheets of those corporates. Maybe not your Exxon Mobiles and your Chevrons, but your your Marathon oils, your uh, your Occidental Petroleums, perhaps. Tyler, I want, I want to ask you, how... How are you thinking about um, credit risk? Because I know you are someone who you know has uh, been saying for many, many, many months now, almost since the beginning of the pandemic, that uh, credit credit spreads are going to continue to decline. Um, that you, you were very bullish, and so far you've been proven very right. But as we were having our conversation today, and as we were sort of chit chatting, uh, you were saying you've actually changed your mind. You're actually saying that this is kind of the, the mother of all bubbles in duration and things, you're, you're a lot more bearish. So tell us, um, why have you changed your mind? Uh, the long end of the curve seems to be um, free markets again from, from the Fed. And I think as long as that happens, and you saw a giant fiscal plan, you probably have three trillion more in infrastructure plan coming. So the supply of treasuries they need to sop up now is, is massive, right? And the Fed needs to incrementally create more demand to buy up that, those assets. We, we don't see China buying as many uh, treasuries anymore. There, there's a huge gap in, in that supply of treasuries now, which is leading to that the higher rates at the, the back end of the curve, right? So, you know, I, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, they were going to print ad, ad nauseum, you know, and, and buy everything. But now that that supply is coming to market. I think that's what's got me a little bit worried. Okay, yeah. So um, the, the the real uh, shot across the bow uh, that that you're talking about is when the the seven year uh, Treasury was was auctioned uh, over sixty billion dollars worth of paper, and the dealers had to buy it uh, rather than just make a market in for it because the marginal buyer wasn't there. This week we're seeing the same uh, market. A lot of issuance of uh, 10-year paper, of 30-year bonds, uh, a glut perhaps. So uh, what are you, how are you, so so Tyler, so you're, so you're bearish bonds. So you're, you're going to sell your bonds, you're going to shed your TLT. Isn't that actually bullish? Because where else are you going to put your money? Um, I think you go to cash, which is why you're seeing the, the dollar actually rise here. And, and generally, this is sort of the same action that happened in 2008, where you saw the bond market sell off energy kept going and that the energy companies oddly will be okay because they've you know gotten beaten up so bad over the, the last you know couple of years but what what my problem is is all the zombie corporations out there that have just been getting by by low rates and they can barely afford their interest payments i mean if it gets 30 percent of the russell or something you know can barely or it's like technically a zombie corporation so that's where i think things are going to really break and you have to watch those companies. Mm, yeah, that's it's, it's kind of a catch 22 because uh, fixed income people, they feel so great if they own loans because loans are typically short duration um, and, and uh, uh, variable interest rate. So they have like, you know, uh, vulnerable struggling borrowers who they will have to refinance at a higher rate if uh, rates rise. However, the, the other side of that is that those borrowers, they're going to have to borrow at higher rates, and they might not be able to uh, to make it. Yeah, I think that's the case, and you're seeing you're seeing a lot 
a lot of damage underneath in, in the really high growth sectors. And, and one of the things we talked about before was the high duration equities um, are now getting absolutely pummeled. Like, like DoorDash is down 10%, um, you know, Peloton's down another 4%. All of Kathy Wood's stuff is is getting cream. So yeah, ARKK is down five percent today. Yeah, so those things will continue to happen. I think we'll get a short short cover bid before the Fed meeting, um, but I really don't see you know who's going to pick up that Treasury supply in the meantime. I don't know. There's a lot of Treasury shorts in there right now, um, so that could snap back on any sort of headline. But yeah, longer term, you know. The deficit's absolutely enormous, and and some of these companies have to go. They, they have to go to by the wayside. It's just the way it goes. Uh, Tyler, we spoke many months ago where you said that you were so bearish that you were actually bullish. Is it possible that now you are so bullish on economic growth that you are actually bearish? Because the the sectors that benefit from economic growth that are highly uh, correlated to real rates rising are uh, sectors like energy, which are much less of the S&P than just a, a single stock like Apple. You know, you have this huge technology sector that is exposed to a, to a rise in interest, interest rates. Yeah, I think you said it better than I did right there. But that's exactly what I'm seeing. The Also, the, the huge difference that I see as well is the amount of SPAC supply. And back then, I said there was too much capital and not enough ideas. And now you're seeing a repricing of long-duration risk, right? And, and a lot of supply in super long duration stuff. So just like you said, I think that that rotation will, will head back to the, to the value stocks. Mm -hmm. And one question I had for you, you are Mr. SPAC uh, aficionado. What are you seeing in the SPAC sector right now? Well, let's see. Uh, there are about 730, 734 extant SPACs. Um, of the ones that have been issued over the past two years, so looking at that 2019 and beyond, that vintage, um, there are 282 of them. Um, so about three months ago, there were 36 that were trading for less than $10. And remember, Tyler, that uh, a SPAC starts, almost every SPAC starts at $10. The idea being you buy it at $10 um, and we're, we're going to – let's say, Tyler, I'm, I'm a – uh, I, I run a SPAC and you are an investor. You give me $10 and I say, Tyler, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to find a great deal. And it's going to be worth way more than $10. If you don't like the deal, uh, you can ask to have your $10 back. So theoretically, a SPAC should never trade below $10. Um, as of three months ago, there were 36 of those 282 that were trading for less than $10. A week ago, there were 42. Um, on Thursday, there were 60. And on Friday, it got as high as 76 of the 282. So 26% uh, of the two years and, and younger vintages were trading below the $10 threshold. So you know, I don't want to be dramatic and say use some word like a SPAC-pocalypse, um, but you're seeing a, a lot of compression in the uh, amount of money that people are willing to pay for SPACs. Uh, I will say that now it's only 32 that are below $10. Perhaps it was buoyed by a SPAC that announced a merger today. Or yesterday, in fact, uh, Newhold Investment Corp, which announced that it's merging with Evolve, which is an artificial intelligence and data science tool to sort of screen people for security for concerts, concerts and public events. Uh, investors include Bill Gates, uh, Jeb Bush, and neither of them are selling out. So they're they're holding their money in. And so this typically is something that you would see the uh, market participants to get excited about. However, today 
it's you know barely trading uh, above above ten dollars. So I think the froth is uh, sort of getting shaken out a little bit in the SPAC market. Whether that will continue, you know, we could have six more months of this. Who knows? Yeah, I know uh, Carson Block uh, thinks uh, SPACs are a, a complete bubble, and some of the stuff that has come to market it is just absolutely appalling. You know, they, they say they have, he did one the other day and said they had $6 million in revenue, but just told the entire uh, you know, investor base that they were going to do like $200 million in Salesforce pipeline. And all of which the salespeople came out and just said, that's, that's completely impossible. So, you know, that's one of a couple hundred of these things. So I think there's probably more downside to come because this was just a giant narrative at the end of a cycle, I, I think. Yeah, the, the counter argument to that being, uh, if you buy something at $9.80, you're going to get that liquidation at, at $10. How can you lose, Tyler? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not a SPAC aficionado like you, but uh, well, I, I'll, I'll stay away until I know the fundamental story of each one of these things. Yeah, well, it's it's impossible to know the individual story for all 700 of them. But uh, Tyler, thank you for indulging me in my hobby horse. Now let's get into something that I know you are in the weeds on, which is GameStop. Uh, that stock, which whose tremendous, which is you know, its tremendous rise struck uh, not just Wall Street but but Main Street. It really gripped the zeitgeist of Main Street versus Wall Street in late January. It's uh, back at it. It today uh, it increased over 40 percent. Mm -hmm. um, or excuse me, over over forty dollars. It's now above one hundred and eighty. I know you've been looking at that market as well as some idiosyncratic plays in the derivatives market. Um, what can you tell me about your outlook on on the price as well as the implied volatility? Yeah, GameStop's probably one of the most interesting phenomenons. And if you're a Real Vision subscriber, you probably know that uh, the Mike Green passive thesis, which is all these passive corporations are constricted in the float. Vanguard, Fidelity, BlackRock are the top holders there. And you're seeing all these call buyers um, in GameStop again, basically causing a pop in, in vol. And a lot of people take advantage of that by selling calls and you, then you get your face ripped off. But I've been selling puts on GameStop once you see giant like pops in vol like this. Like 90% out of the money, you can still get an insane volatility um, by by doing that. So at, at these rates, I think it's that's the great play. And then you have on the downside, you have Vanguard, Fidelity, and and uh, BlackRock holding the majority of the float. So for those for GameStop to actually hit like say $20 a share again they have to have massive outflows. And if that's the case, then we're looking at a really, really uh, gloomy world in the next like month or two. That's really interesting, Tyler. I, I might add, and this is I'm sure something I, you know, that let's say when GameStop went from 80 to $180 the first time, if you had owned a put option with a strike price of $1, that is the right to sell a single share at $1, an extremely bearish bet, you would have actually have made money as the stock went from 80 to 180 simply because the applied volatility was so high. And that's something, Tyler, you know, we were making a few charts with this beforehand. Um, you know, you look at the implied volatility of GameStop, it's way higher than Tesla, way higher than the S&P. In fact, the delta between the Tesla and S&P, which is huge, is simply dwarfed um, by that. Yeah. Isn't that incredible, though? It, like, it, that's where if you're a retail investor 
and you're playing buying derivatives on something like this because you think the stock's going to go up, you're you're just you know in in another league. Whereas like if you're selling insurance, you're getting paid in insane amounts of premium to sell insurance right now, and and that's where I think the better bet is at this at this juncture. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Very expensive uh, with you know implied volatility uh, at the you know let's say the fifty percent uh, moneyness. Um, being in the 70s, in the 80s, um, I actually saw, I was just looking at a, a chart that I, I was doing an investigation of, uh, tail risk for the S&P 500 actually has a higher implied volatility than it does for DocuSign. Uh, once you get to the 50 to 60% minus, so way, way out of the money. Um, and by the way, if you talk to your typical sell, sell, uh, sell side guy on, on an options desk, he might not even know what this is because they're so used to, thinking about their deltas and about hedging their deltas. Oh, 10 delta, okay, I got a hedge, okay, uh, it's at 100, okay. But these extremely far out of the money options, what does it mean to you, Tyler, that implied volatility is cheaper for DocuSign, a growth stock, the mother of all growth stocks, it's got a price to sales ratio above 30, uh, the tail risk for that is actually cheaper in terms of implied volatility than the S&P 500. This is a one month implied volatility, I might add. What do you make of that, Tyler? I think uh, Jay Powell broke the markets. Is what I make of it. I think you know all the stuff that's happening is just really scary, and I, I don't, I don't know what happens. I think you know if you watch Charlie Bassman, he's like saying balls is mispriced, and all these giant uh, short vol trades are are now unwinding um, in, in a lot of the sectors of the economy. So. Yeah, I'm I'm scared as hell right now. And and what what's interesting though is there's one asset that's been kind of outperforming in all this, which is which is Bitcoin. Um, you'd think you know back in March when the pandemic hit last year, Bitcoin got taken to the cleaners because you know real rates were rising. Um, we we had an onset of like a basically a credit crisis, and right now. You know, Bitcoin is massively outperforming, and not only that, it's getting more and more corporations to buy Bitcoin as an inflation hedge. Um, and specifically, uh, one guy today, his name is Kiel Roki. I'm going to completely butcher the guy's name, but he is uh, a billionaire, one of the the second richest people in Norway. He sat at the center of globalization for about 30 years in the petrodollar recycling market. Today, he just put $58 million of Bitcoin on uh, one of his company's balance sheets, which to me kind of signals, okay, here's this guy that pretty much has seen the entire US dollar uh, tentacle go all over the world. And, and in Norway, they have one of the biggest pension funds in the entire world, like $1.3 trillion uh, oil fund there that invests all over the globe. So for this guy who is a magnate in Norway to basically buy Bitcoin on his balance sheet um, and, and call out central banking in this letter he wrote, it, it's it's pretty incredible that this thing is is going from a 
store value to now an inflation hedge for for corporations. And we're getting into like dystopian worlds of like the sovereign individual at this point. Um, and I wrote about this in my newsletter today in, in more in depth, but that is one of the divergences in this whole thing. You would you would step back if I told you six months ago, you'd say Bitcoin, if, if the NASDAQ is falling, Bitcoin's going to fall like 20% more. Bitcoin has a hundred volatility and it's been outperforming all of Kathy Wood's stuff lately, which which kind of shows to me the narrative's changed in Bitcoin. And we might actually be, be witnessing a giant um, rotation out of 60-40 portfolios into Bitcoin. Like gold's not even reacting to this like, like Bitcoin is. It's massively outperforming. So that is one, one caveat I want to end with that is uh, super on my mind right now. Tyler, I know that you have gotten super bullish on Bitcoin and crypto um, over the past year, and that, that's something I want to explore. Can you tell me about Bitcoin's interaction with real rates? You know, if Bitcoin is digital gold, if it um, is, is the replacement for, for, for gold, uh, you'd expect that as real rates rise, uh, Bitcoin would be damaged by that, just like it, uh, gold is damaged by that. But as you say, We've seen that Bitcoin has proven resilient uh, in the wake of this real rate rise. Uh, gold has sort of traded in a range, traded down. Uh, these high-flying growth stocks have been taken to the cleaners, as you say. But yeah, Bitcoin has um, performed well. What does that mean to you? So it's it's no longer just digital gold. Um, what What is it? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's the Swiss army knife of investment, right? Like, it, it steals a little pie from everybody else. Like. If you're a corporation buying it right now, it's an inflation hedge. Um, if you are a corporation or say, say you're a central bank that owns gold, you know, gold is $10 trillion in market cap and Bitcoin is 1.5. There's probably some arbitrage happening from there. So it, it steals a little pie from, from all these giant market caps. It steals pie from bonds. Like corporate bonds are down 4.5% this year. And you know you have no place to hedge your money. You got to go to a finite store of value. Um, so it's the the narratives constantly change, but that's what's making it so dynamic. And you, it's it's also completely uh, geographically. Um, you know, there's no uh, geographic barriers, right? You saw this Norway guy bought it today uh, last Friday. A company in China put it on their balance sheet. It's it's in in Nigeria. I think they're making it um, a national currency. There's it's it's happening across the globe right now. So one of the things I concentrate on is is who's swimming in your pool. And nearly everybody in public equities or in bonds, they run like 60-40 portfolios. Everyone manages money the same way. The one thing that Bitcoin and, and digital assets have is a massively diverse holder base. Everybody in the world owns it for all these different incentives, which makes things actually a lot healthier. It's it's a, a heterogeneous incentive pool, which what that's what public equity markets were, you know, 30 years ago when everybody owned things for different reasons, traded for different reasons. We've completely perverted public equity markets now where everybody owns them for all these factors, like factor-based investing and this and that. And like that is so far from Bitcoin. There's like there's 5,000 different strategies across 5,000 different languages, maybe more that 
create like an incentive system that is so much healthier for long-term markets. Like you could say, I think the market, the public equity market is now just a, a, it's a, it's essentially just a utility. Like Jay Powell is going to come out and he's going to do, and they're going to do all this fiscal stuff that makes certain pockets of, of the market have growth and you know, all that. But the free market in the real inflation rate is actually happening in Bitcoin. So like, here, here's an R by I wrote about you know last week was you have 2.5 trillion dollars in European bank accounts that are now getting charged interest right why wouldn't you just open up a BlockFi account as a, a European depositor and go make six percent on your USDC like I feel like that ARB is going to be absolutely enormous so money will find its way water finds its level to the highest earning thing. And as long as governments and central banks suppress free markets, the free markets will find find their way. The black market always finds its its level of, of liquidity. And I think that's what's going on right now before our very eyes. Um, so that's what I expect to keep going. Tyler, when you say that BlockFi, can, uh, people can go on BlockFi and earn 6% on uh, USDC, USDC being a stable coin that does not fluctuate. So it's like you're getting 6% denominated in dollars, not like, not like a Bitcoin loan where the price could fluctuate 6% in a day. It's, Correct. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you can get it on, on your stable coin, which is, which is pretty incredible. And, and how they do that is probably an hour or two long podcast. But you know, essentially, here's what I, I wanted to do a longer show on. But like, I used to short volatility at one of the longest mutual... Uh, biggest long only mutual funds in the country for an income fund. And what that symbolized to me was you, you're just generating yield off of equities, right? You, you take a, a single stock that has a pop in volatility and you short volatility to create a bond like proxy. The only reason you do that really is because there's no other better places to put your money. So you create like bond like proxies in the equity market, right? And that's sort of happening in Bitcoin, except it's, it's over collateralized and relatively to the yields you get in, in public equities and any, basically anywhere in the public markets, you can get like a, a hefty yield for your money in Bitcoin. Um, you can make, if you buy spot Bitcoin in short futures, you can make 15%. Like it, it's, it's, it's mind blowing. That's riskless. There's arbitrage traders doing this hand over fist on leverage and making ungodly amounts of money. If you look, just look up at Vision Hill um, crypto indices, they are on fire. You can see the performance. And this is also a performance arbitrage between hedge funds that are all doing the same thing, like the same basic long short things versus hedge funds that are in a new asset class that are creating new things. And, and there's no way to short volatility there in, in like the public equity type of picking up uh, nickels in front of a steamroller. Does that make sense? Yes, it, it does, Tyler. I was lucky enough to speak to the co-founder of uh, BlockFi, Flory Marquez, and I was struck at the, uh, the harmony of the ecosystem where you have people who own Bitcoin, it's not really doing anything, they want to earn a yield. And meanwhile, they have really heavy, excuse me, savvy hedge fund managers who see these tremendous arbitrage opportunities in Bitcoin who want to borrow Bitcoin to make the trade in the same way that if you're a hedge fund, you want to borrow dollars on margin or borrow a stock 
on margin. So I, I really see a huge need, a, a huge um, uh, equality between what, pe what people have on one end and what, what people need on the other. Um, so there is a, that nice symbiosis there. T Tyler, as we close, I want to ask you, um, don't you feel a little uncomfortable, or perhaps you don't, uh, when you've pr been proven so right, when Raoul's been proven so right, when the crypto bulls have been proven so right, um, you know, crypto has been on, on an absolute tear. Do you, don't you think that there should, could be a little bit of a mean reversion? Are you a cycles guy? Do you think that, you know, we're a little bit long in the tooth? What, what, what are you thinking there? Yeah, I, I keep an open mind. Like I'm a trader, right? So if, uh, the price action changes or I see anything kind of funky, I'll, I'll adjust my thesis. I'm kind of like, I, I try to think like Stan, Stan Druckenmiller. So, you know, uh, uh, right now, I just don't, you know, it's not reacting to all the historical things it did before. And you're seeing lots of inflows. You're seeing a constriction of supply. If you look at all the money coming off exchanges at, at you know, in these crypto exchanges, it's constricting the supply and going into an institutional holder base, which creates smaller and smaller supply for each incremental buyer. So if I saw supply rising and I saw the, the mega whales, if you will, selling in that supply rising, that would get me to change my tune. Um, so right now, I don't see any of that stuff going on. And crypto investors are also like super macro investors. They're all already looking out and they're seeing, okay, you know, I'm going to build this system no matter what. It's the deeper I dig, it's some of the smartest people in the world building this stuff. And they've already come to the conclusion that there is no other path for central banks besides hyperinflation. And that's why, that's all the ARB is, is just like, you know, this old system that uses a hammer to just stomp out all these problems. Um, and, and they're all thinking about things like generational. It's, it's just not going to be what we're going to use. Look at, watch Jack Dorsey's every move. Like he, he thinks about things so strategically and sees the social um, problems as well. And it's, it's just fascinating, um, relative to the world of like risk adjusted returns. It's, it's really that, that whole risk adjusted returns is just kind of like a baby boomer mentality because they want to hold on to their wealth. Right. And as long you can risk adjust everything away and then create no innovation. So you have to go to these super pockets of innovation because that's the thing that's always in lease supply. And in some of these people, if you look at, they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. They're, they're rocket scientists that gave up, you know, programming public equity quant models to go create this stuff. So I don't know. Talent recognizes genius and mediocrity knows nothing higher than itself. Right? <laughs> so like, I just go where all the smart people go. There we go. Well, well, Tyler, uh, as we close, I want to ask you a question, which is, so I'm wearing a shirt that says subprime and it's sort of in, in honor of the, the last time we had rates rise and, and it led to a huge correction. Um, obviously, the culprit there was subprime mortgages and the uh, 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 credit default swaps, the derivatives on, on top of that, which just amplified the leverage. Uh, now we're at another time where we see rates rise. Do you think that this has the potential to sink the equity market? Uh, wh what is your outlook on the NASDAQ, on the S&P 500? over the near terms, um, you know, is Google safe, is Apple safe, or is it going to be the docu signs and the, the arcs of the world that will be affected? Or 
our rates going to continue to go back down and they'll be fine. And, and it will be the high yield um, energy stocks and the, the inflation stocks that are under threat. Uh, can, you, can you give us your, your macro analysis for, for stocks um, over the next year, Tyler, as we close? Yeah, I think over the next year, I'd say tech stocks are down. Too much money congregated in, in all these vehicles that pushed money pushed it into the highest, fastest growing great narratives, right? And the bigger you are, you can't grow at the rate. They have now have a target on their back with antitrust. They can't even buy any other companies with the cash on their balance sheets. So I just don't, I don't understand what like the fangs are going to do um, the next year. I see a giant rotation out of that into value. And uh, that's, that's sort of how I see it playing out. Um, in terms of credit stress, one of the things that I think is just a complete bomb that keeps getting like papered over in a post-truth world is is commercial real estate. I don't understand how that reconciles uh, at all. Like every every company or CEO I know that's our generation is like, why the hell do I need a giant office to pay a premium for that, you know, ruins 20% of my margins or whatever the hell it is. Like, it doesn't make sense to, I don't know what's going to happen in these giant buildings. So especially like, what if pension funds decide, oh, I want to reallocate out of like commercial real estate? I think it's a yield play though. I think, I think that those uh, REITs have such High yields. Um, yeah. Can they have no yields if no one's paying the, the rent? I mean, that's who pays the rent? I mean, right now they're recognizing like uh, accounts receivable. And, yeah. uh, and it's the, the rules like are just getting changed before our eyes. So maybe the Fed buys it and then turns it into like, I don't know, old folks' homes. Who knows? Yeah. This, uh, I, I was looking today at the annual report of SLG which is New York commercial uh, office buildings. And I was just, I could not get through it. Uh, the, the, the legalese and the, the different uh, companies, how what was classified as what, it was, it was really complicated. I, I will note in some niche aspects of the, the REIT market, uh, like EPR properties, whose biggest clients are movie theaters, you know, AMC, that, that whole drama uh, resulted in a massive recapitalization of AMC. The shareholders got diluted, but someone who's downstream, you know, AMC can pay its bills. So, and they're something like 15% of EPR property. So there are some opportunities there. Then you get into your, your assignment, your uh, Brookfield properties. But, um, you know, Tyler, we're, we're, uh, we got to end it here, but it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I hope to have you back soon. Could you please, before we go, can you tell people how they could, uh, you know, follow your work both on, on Twitter as, as well as your blog? Yeah. Uh, on Twitter, I'm tneville336. Um, and then just go to blockworks.co and, and sign up for the, the newsletter. Um, it comes out nightly every night. So um, appreciate it, Jack. I really enjoy this every time. Great. Thanks, Tyler. Talk soon. See you, bud. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.